0: All right, for announcements, we've got, boy, that's loud. Either feast or famine around this place. No sound or blow everybody away. Uh, Men's Prayer breakfast is coming up a week from Saturday morning, 7.30. And um, come out and enjoy the time together. We always talk about important topics. Second, we have an annual congregation meeting the next day on Sunday, February the 11th. And then we have this uh, support, support for Israel, Israel at War uh, conference uh, the next week after that. Tuesday night, I'll talk about Romans uh, one sixteen and uh, evangelism to the Jewish community. Uh, Olivier Melnick will talk about anti-Semitism Wednesday night. Yoram Edinger will be here Thursday night, and then Friday we're... Have an adventure, and I'll talk more about this when we go to uh, Yad Vashem. The dress for the men should be slacks and a sport coat. No tie is necessary, but they—that's how they dress. And um, so, ladies, you can dress in a comparable fashion. And um, I guess that was the only other thing, other than—and that was the absolutely that was the first thing that when I talked to uh, Rabbi Strauss yesterday. The first thing he said was about cell phones and not having lights on. So that's, and, then, um, and then he said about the dress, and that's it. So, and I'd encourage you to, uh, if you can, stay for the uh, Shabbat dinner uh, because that's, um, uh, that's part of it. It just gives you an opportunity to talk to people and, and um, get to know some of the, some of the folks over there. So before we get started tonight we'll uh, go to the Lord in prayer. we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that we can make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord and ready to study the word so um, and then I will open in prayer so let's uh, let's pray. Father we're thankful that we have this opportunity to come together to study your word, to focus on your, uh, your truth, recognizing that it is by means of your truth, your word, that you work in our lives to sanctify us, that God the Holy Spirit uses your word to uh, move us along spiritually. So Father, we pray that we would be submissive to what your word teaches, understand it, and be able to apply it. We pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, let's open up our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We'll start off with just a little bit of review. And I was, uh, I was encouraged uh, since last week when we went through the uh, doctrine of circumcision, what the Bible teaches about circumcision, I had uh, more than one person comment to me that, that they learned things that, that they did not, did not know. And I didn't even do an in-depth study, but it's enough. Okay, so the topic in the next couple of verses is where's our confidence? And this isn't just really a confidence about salvation. It's confidence in relation to the entire spiritual life. Where is your confidence? Is it in the Lord alone or is it in uh, your abilities, your talent, your money, your um, your friends, the people you're associated with, or is it in the Lord alone? And that's a difficult question sometimes to answer because obviously God works through the things that we have and the things that he's given us and the friends that we have, and they are means that he uses in, uh, in sustaining us in different times, in different situations. Uh, but ultimately what 's our trust in, and we have to always address that particular issue. The issue in Philippians were two, going back to the uh, opening um, paragraph of the main body in Philippians 1, 27 and twenty eight The issue is number one unity being of one mind, and second the idea of working together or being steadfast, so they have to be steadfast in the truth, number one. And number two, they have to be unified in the course of standing fast together. So when we come to chapter three, we recognize that there were two sources of problems. The one we're addressing initially is the Judaizers. They uh, added human works to justification and or spiritual growth or sanctification the second group has to do with the those other that other group making up just the pagan civilization around them, but we'll get to that when we get further along in the in the study. So we come to Philippians chapter one, I mean chapter three, verse one, and we read uh, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, and I pointed out that finally doesn't mean in conclusion, it means it the way the, the um, The Greek here is used, it's just going to the next point. It's a transitional phrase. He says, my brethren, meaning he's talking to believers, and he tells them to rejoice in the Lord, to have joy in the Lord. And then in verse, um, and the way I translated that is, for the rest, my brothers, you all rejoice in the Lord or have your joy in the Lord would be another way to translate that. I was thinking through that today. Is your joy in your circumstances? Is your joy in your friends? Is your joy in a um, certain amount of stability in life? Or is your joy in the Lord? We can take great pleasure in positive circumstances, just as we have displeasure in negative circumstances. We can have uh, great pleasure in our friends, our family. We can have great pleasure in a career or in work, but the source of our joy, our stability, because the joy here is not an emotional joy, it is a mental attitude joy of stability and contentment with our circumstances. That is is um, elevated because it and is distinctive because it is a fruit of the spirit, and so we can't just uh, when when. Paul says to rejoice, we have to think this is something that comes with spiritual growth, spiritual maturity as the fruit of the Spirit. It's not really something I can just generate. It's not personality. You know, some of the things that you go through in life as a pastor at least are things that the Lord is, takes you through to teach you things. And I had a, um, I had an interesting Situation in my first church. I was, um, you know, I was about 29 years old when I became a pastor, and it was a church that had something of a Bible church background, but there were a lot of uh, older folks in the congregation that didn't have that Bible church background, but about a third of the people there. Had come out of Houston and they had gone to and had grown up in churches with um, solid Bible teaching Dallas Seminary graduates. And so it was, um, there was kind of a mix. Uh, you have among the older people, they, a number of them were represented by one lady who. One day, you know, I'd go around and visit these older ladies, and they made me fat because they would always cook cakes and pastries and whatever to feed the pastor, or stuff the pastor. And uh, so I'd go by and one lady. So, I mean, her her intentions were good, but as my mother said, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. She said, you know, why can't you be like, like um, uh, Norman Vincent Peale or... Um, Oh, who's that other guy? Um, Schuller, Robert Schuler? I didn't say anything. And um, you know that's what they wanted. And that church eventually eventually kind of exploded. And there were a couple of people in the church who were who had have been a lot happier with the Pente- a charismatic or Pentecostal church. And one of those guys came up to me one day. I had invited uh, Ron Blue, who was just a Ron Blue was just a great professor at Dallas Seminary in the missions department, and he was probably ADHD from the moment of his conception. And it was like he just—he was one of those people who's just effervescent. That's his personality. It had nothing to do with the Lord. But afterward, and it was kind of a dig, this one guy said, wasn't that great? He just really has the joy of the Lord. And I said, you know, there's a difference between personality and and the spiritual fruit, and you've got them confused. Because there are door people who have great contentment and joy in their soul But it's not their personality. And a lot of people confuse aspects of the fruit of the Spirit with personality. And you can't confuse them. Uh, People have all kinds of personalities, but that doesn't mean that they're they're joyful and that's the fruit of the Spirit. So this is the result of spiritual growth. And Paul emphasizes the fact that he's going to be repeating some things. So he not only repeats rejoice... Uh, again, from several places as you go through Philippians, Philippians 2:18, Philippians 2:28. But in the next verse, which is where we're really getting started tonight, is uh, with a few new new things to point out in Philippians 3:2. He repeats this word "beware" three times, it's a Greek word "blepo," which means to look at something, and it has a range of meaning, and it has, and the range of meaning has to do with um, looking at, examining, evaluating, all the way to a warning. So you really have to look at the context to say, is this a warning? Or is he s- not only saying uh, to one le- level a warning, but it also has the idea, because if you look at the way Paul uses the word, in some places he's talking about you know, evaluating something, really looking into something. And so that's as much a part of the idea here that he is that he's looking at. But I wanted to point out that when he says, "Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of mutilation," he is um, he, he's repeating the words that have the same uh, begin with the same letter. And so you have uh, uh, kuon for dog, kakos for evil and katatome for mutilation. So he's alliterating. And this is just one way to do it where you get people's attention because that's one of the ways in which when you don't have boldface and you don't have uh, italics and underlining and different fonts and all of the different ways that we can highlight something today, you just do it by using these different uh, different figures of speech and, and uh, writing uh, devices so he's just he 's reiterating this three times, and so you have these three uh, categories, but they 're synonymous and He uses the word "dog" and I pointed this out um, the last time that this was used as a uh, pejorative word for gentiles, but it was also used for someone of an impure mind and someone who was an impudent or arrogant person and this This was how it was used in in Koine Greek among Gentiles, and the Jews had taken it over and just used that as a as an insult for for um, uh, for Gentiles. So that's that's part of what's going on here. So the first thing he uses is the word dogs, and that comes um, it's used in Matthew 15:21 to 28 as well as Isaiah 56:10. To refer negatively to to the Jews who are into false religion, and in and, and, uh, Matthew fifteen twenty one to twenty eight, it's used of Gentiles. So he's flipping that, and 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 in using that as a negative term for the um, uh, for the self righteous Judaizers. Then we saw evil workers. And called them ju- Judaizers or deceitful workers, and then mutilators. And the mutilators are those who are saying that you have to be circumcised in order, uh, in order to be saved. And so as we look at, we looked at that, and we looked last time at the doctrine of circumcision or what the Bible teaches about circumcision, and then we came to, uh, now we come to this next verse, Philippians 3 3. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Now I want to remind you of a few key things about circumcision. So I went through all of the points, 14 points, last time. I'm not going to go through all of those. I just want to hit a few things so you're reminded of them. Uh, Before we go further, first of all, just basic definition, circumcision is the removal of the foreskin of the male's genital organ. And the basis for this is he's the head of the home. And because people say, well, why not? What about the women? Well, thank your lucky stars. This was just for the men because they're the head of the house. They are the spiritual leaders of the nation. And so they are symbolically representing the fact that Israel is set apart and distinct, and this was distinctively the... um, uh, I must have accidentally took out slide two, which is that it is the um, Abrahamic covenant, which is first, so... I dropped that slide accidentally. Uh, First, it is circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. That's the most important thing because the Abrahamic covenant is still in effect today for the Jewish people. And so circumcision is still in effect, and it was not associated with his salvation. This is what Paul goes to in in, uh, Romans chapter 4. In Romans 4, when he is explaining justification by faith alone, he goes to the illustration of Abraham. And he quotes Genesis fifteen six that Abraham was justified by faith when he believed God it was imputed to him as righteousness. Now this is very important because that occurred long before the Abrahamic covenant was uh, was was sealed as it were at the signing uh, ceremony described in Genesis chapter fifteen. I mean, uh, later on in Genesis 15. So he is circum—he is declared righteous. Excuse me, long before he's circum- circumcised, and so circumcision was nothing more than a sign that God was setting apart Abraham and his descendants as a special people. It had nothing to do with salvation or spirituality. Then we come to the uh, Mosaic covenant which also mandates circumcision for the Jewish males but this was had a different meaning in the mosaic covenant and it was uh, to designate those who were members of the Jewish commonwealth of the nation and only those who were circumcised could participate in the rituals and only those who were circumcised could go to, te- to the temple uh, because it was only for the Jewish people. So there's, it's making a clear distinction between Jews and Gentiles. But uh, servants and slaves who were not circumcised could not participate in any of these things uh, until they were circumcised. And this was made clear in uh, Exodus 12:48. So circumcision in the Abrahamic covenant is a sign of the covenant, and thus it's a sign of being Jewish. And it's mandatory, and still mandatory, for all Jewish males. So under the Mosaic Covenant, it's just a sign of submission to the law. And it is uh, not part of being saved, and it's not really part of sanctification. It's part of, as it were, a sign of citizenship within the nation. And that got all... And see, see, Israel was a... Um, Theocratic state. God ruled over the nation. Well, when you get into the Christian era in uh, the early fourth century in the 300s, when Constantine is able to finally solidify his reign as the emperor of Rome, and he legalized Christianity. He made it the legal religion, so church and state came together. Basically, he was creating a theocracy, and they used the Mosaic law as the model and the pattern for Christianity and a Christian state. So on that analogy, they came along and made an analogy between infant baptism and circumcision, As just as circumcision was the sign of your citizenship in the theocratic kingdom of Israel, then circumcision would become the sign of your citizenship in a, in a nation, in the Roman Empire, later in other nations. This is why when you come to the, uh, come to the Protestant Reformation, if you remember those of you who've gone through this with me, it starts with Martin Luther. On October 31st, 1517, and he nails 95 debate points onto the church door, which was the local bulletin board at the time. That he, and these were not related to exegetical or theological topics as much as they were related to abusive practices in the Roman Catholic Church. But it quickly became about theology, about what the Bible teaches. And so, uh, but Luther is still in favor of a union between church and state. And then you have the development of the Protestant Reformation under John Calvin. And Calvin has to uh, flee Paris uh, where he had been a student and, and he had taken on Reformation uh, theology and he went to Geneva. And in Geneva they basically had this sort of a church-state relationship a lot of people don't understand that that, that, that that it was the leaders of Geneva who ruled, ran things, not Calvin. And so people blame Calvin for a number of things that, that probably shouldn't have happened. But it wasn't necessarily Calvin's fault. It was the fact that you had this church-state union. And then you go over into the other part of Switzerland, and you have, because uh, that was in the French Part of Switzerland, Geneva. That's the French-Swiss Reformation. Then you go uh, east, and you go into the German-speaking area, and you go to Zurich, and um, and Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli was the Reformation leader there. Again, a former priest, but he had some followers: Conrad uh, Grebel and Fli- Felix uh, Blaurock and uh, Felix Manns and Georg Blaurock. And um, they were reading through scriptures on baptism and realized, no, baptism was not analogous to circumcision, that baptism was for a person who had come to an understanding of the gospel and trusted Christ as Savior. So they are talking about the fact that that you needed to be uh, baptized and that it was by immersion and not by sprinkling and you didn't do this, it wasn't legitimate unless you did it after you had trusted in Christ as Savior. Well, when you are saying something like that in the midst of a nation that has church and state united and that the sign of your citizenship in that nation is infant baptism when you're a child, you have made a political statement. And what you have declared is that uh is that infant baptism is not biblical, it's not right, it's not moral, it's not spiritual, and we have to wait until somebody is an adult believer. You've made a political statement and you're a traitor. And so Zwingli found him guilty of heresy and and violating the law And so in order to make sure that they learned their lesson, their uh, execution was by drowning because, of course, they wanted to be immersed, so they were going to permanently immerse them. So all of these things, all of these misunderstandings and misinterpretations of Scripture just created lots of problems uh, in in the early church that plagued the Middle Ages and then... Uh, the attempts to write them, in the Reformation took. Um, actually, it's still going on. Uh, it, it was a shift back to Scripture, and it just takes time to work your way through all the areas of theology. So the Mosaic law is for assigned a submission to the law. What happens at the early church is you had these group of Former Pharisees, we went through the passages in Acts last time, former Pharisees who still wanted to hold on to the law, and so they're telling everybody they have to also apply the law. In, in Judaism, at, as it was, that, that's really this, uh, the seeds for what later develops as Orthodox Judaism in the modern period, which is not the same as Biblical Judaism. But what happens is they elevate two commands, They elevate the sabbatical command, and they elevate the circumcision command as the two prime commands in the Mosaic law. And so that's why it was so important in the time of Jesus, when he is healing on the Sabbath, that they are going absolutely nuts because he is violating their traditions of the Sabbath, not what was in the text of, of the Mosaic law. So they, and and the other thing they did is they take circumcision not as simply a sign of being a descendant of Abraham, but they took circumcision uh, from the Mosaic law as being necessary in order to participate in the church. So that's that's a distortion, and then it becomes part of salvation and part of of um, of the of the spiritual life. What's interesting is, as things developed within early the early rabbinical period, is that that by by getting that circumcision is the sign that you're you're part of you're a descendant of Abraham and you're part of the Abrahamic covenant, and that being part a descendant of Abraham is what gets you automatically saved. That was a problem with Pharisaism as well, is that if you were uh, of the seed of Abraham, you were automatically, they, they were interpreting the uh, Abrahamic covenant as salvific. And so that's why cir- circumcision becomes associated with with salvation. And I looked at some quotes last time. But if you go to A- the Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, it just stick with the, the Torah. It has nothing to do with justification, salvation, or the spiritual life and in the second temple period which starts after the temple was destroyed i uh, gave you these quotes from uh, com- commentaries rabbinical commentaries on ezekiel 16:6 6, where he says clearly that uh, that circumcision is to merit being saved one cannot obtain reward meaning salvation apart from deeds now keep that in your mind, because that's what the Judaizers are basically saying as background to what's going on in, in Philippians 3. Uh, Jacob Neusner in the Encyclopedia of, of Judaism says, uh, that talks about this, the salvific nature of the right in general, but more specifically to the saving merit of circumcision blood. And then it goes on to say the symbolic value of circumcision as an act of salvation is evident throughout 2nd century sources. Well, if it was in the 2nd century sources, it certainly was there in the 1st century. So we've gone through those. But there was another kind of circumcision that is ignored. And that we saw in Deuteronomy 10.16, the circumcision of the heart. Uh that is mentioned in Deuteronomy 1016 as well as in Deuteronomy 30 verse, verse 6 that the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. That's related to the the, the um coming of the new covenant when when the Messiah returns. We see in Jeremiah 9:24, uh, very important passage where the Lord says, Let him who glories Pay attention to that word. It's going to show up in Philippians 3, the word that's tr- t- it's not translated uh, glories. In the New King James Version, it is, um, it- it's tra- translated as, uh, I think it's the word translated, one of the words translated as confidence. But no, it means to boast or to glory in something. Okay, and so what God says in Jeremiah nine twenty four is, "...let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising chesed love, loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight. Behold, days are coming." That's always kind of a clue. That's talking about the end, end of time, the uh, latter days for Israel. The days are coming that I will punish all who are circumcised with, along with the, the uh, uncircumcised. So circumcision in that passage is very clear. It is not salvific. In Acts, Stephen's message calls the, the, the Jews stiff-necks and uncircumcised in heart. Again, we get to, to this. And the issue in the studying Galatians is that they're... Uh, Paul says, "...are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now uh, being made complete?" Better translation, "...by the flesh." We'll talk about that term, flesh. It's not just sin nature here. It's through. Hu- it basically means human activity. And Galatians 5.2, he comes back and says, "...indeed I, Paul, say to you that you become, if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing." So what we saw in our diagram is that in terms of eternal realities, when we are baptized by the the Holy Spirit and entered into Christ, that is spiritual circumcision. Okay, that is when we are separated from the tyranny of the sin nature and put into the new man. And then we have our daily walk, which is uh, day by day, and that fluctuates depending on where we put our focus. So under point 12, the true circumcision is that which is spiritual in Christ. And that's where we are in our passage in Philippians 3. 3 For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. So as we look at those two verses, we see confidence in the flesh um, three times. Quiz. What are these two verses talking about? When the Holy Spirit is repeating things and repeating phrases, pay attention. He doesn't repeat things a lot, but repetition is one of the key things you look for in uh, observation stage of Bible study is are there words that are repeated? Well, that's going to give you a big clue as to what he's talking about. He's talking about the problem of confidence in the flesh. So Philippians uh, three: three, we have the, the main clause is an expla- explanation. It starts off with the word for, which is the word in Greek, which is gar, and it introduces an explanation for what he has said before. So what he has said before is the uh, warning to look, to evaluate, to be, to be watchful uh, in relation to these Judaizers and understand what they are teaching and don't fall into the trap. That's the subtext there. And he explains why, and there's a shift in focus here, because the the Judaizers are saying they're the circumcision. Therefore, because they're circumcised, they have the uh, they have salvation. And so the uh, so Paul's basic argument is is that Israel has lost sight of God's grace and God's provision. They have. They have redefined the significance of circumcision, focusing on the value of the external physical ritual, and they have failed to boast in the Lord alone. That's a verse I just quoted a minute, minute ago in Jeremiah 9, 23 to 25. So therefore, they forfeited the right to be called the circumcision and Paul says, "We are the true circumcision because we've been circumcised spiritually, the circumcision of the heart." So Jeremiah nine twenty three to twenty five. I just read that a minute ago. That's they're glorying not in the Lord, but they're glorying in the physical ritual. Romans two twenty nine. Paul says, "But he is a Jew who is one inwardly." It's not outward. The outward doesn't define it. You have, it is a circumcision that is that of the heart. Now, that's not something Paul made up. This is something that was present. That's why I quoted those passages again in Deuteronomy. It, it, that, that's mosaic. This whole idea of circumcision of the heart is in Moses. It's in Jeremiah. And so he says that's the real issue is circumcision of the heart in the spirit or by the spirit, not in the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. And then Colossians two eleven, he says in him, that is in Christ. That's that position as a result of the baptism by the Holy Spirit. In him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. So here it's very clear that this is is not the physical ritual, but the physical ritual actually represented a spiritual reality that was quite distinct. And it represents the putting off of the body of sins of the flesh. It represents that uh, break of the power, the tyranny of the sin nature. So he says, "...for we are the circumcision." But then he's going to define it through three participial phrases, through relative participles. He says, first of all, we are defined as those who worship God by means of the Spirit. Second, he says, we rejoice in Jesus Christ. And third, he says, and we have no uh, confidence in the flesh. I misspoke a minute ago when I was talking about the word for glory The word that is translated rejoice here means to glory or boast in something. It's not kirete. It's not the word that's translated rejoice in verse 1. It is a, a very different word, and it means to glory in something. We glory in Christ Jesus. The problem with the Israelites going to Jeremiah 9 was they didn't glory in God. But believers in the church age are those who glory in Christ Jesus And third, they have no confidence in the flesh. So let's look at each one of these. First of all, we worship God in the spirit. This is the Greek word latruo. This is different from the word proskuneo. Proskuneo is your other main word for worship that has to do with the idea of submission, bending the knee, bowing down uh, before the authority of someone. So litruo is an act of service, and it's often translated that way. That's the word that you have, uh, not in Revol- Romans. I was thinking Romans 12 too. It's Romans 12.1. Uh, it's our reasonable service that we are to um, give ourselves uh, to the Lord, that we are to, um, uh, by the mercies of God, we are to present our bodies Notice that physical thing that the physical body that really is used to stand for the whole person. That we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So that is what uh, what this is emphasizing this this service worship in God in the spirit. Now I want you to keep your place in Philippians three. And I want us to turn to the Gospel of John. I want to go to the, the Gospel of John. John chapter 4. John 4 is the um, is the episode where Jesus is and his disciples are traveling through Samaria. And then he comes to what is modern-day Nablus. But at that time... Um, it was Shechem, Shem, as it's pronounced in, in, in Hebrew. And so we're told in verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. Now, what's the significance of that? It, it, it's not like the pastors today who are, you know, I have 15,000 in my church and I have twenty uh 250,000 who live stream. They're not counting numbers. When someone were to come and make a claim to be the Messiah, and this had not happened before, Jesus is the first person known to make a claim to be the Messiah. When John the Baptist started preaching in the wilderness, what happened? You go back to John chapter 1. The the Pharisees and Sadducees are coming out because they had a procedure in their tradition that if someone were to claim to be the Messiah, first they would go out and investigate. Then they would come back and say whether or not this was something worth pursuing. And then second, if it was worth pursuing, then they would go out and then they would begin to interrogate the person who might be making a claim to be the Messiah. When they asked uh, John, are, "Are you the Messiah?" he he said no, and uh, and then went on. But then Jesus came along, so they're looking at Jesus, and now Jesus has more followers and he's baptizing more than John the Baptist. The subtext there is this man is one who's making a, has a greater claim to be the Messiah than John the Baptist. They're looking at the size of the crowds. They're looking at the number of those who are being baptized, and they are uh, paying attention. And then verse 2 is a parenthesis. Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. When I was up in Connecticut, I took that as a as a methodology verse. So when... Um, when I had to do some baptisms, and traditionally the way that church got started, the first people who got baptized before that, it was all um, it was all congregational churches, and they didn't they had infant baptism. But when some um, some Baptists came into the area in the early 19th century, and they were explaining that uh, that believe, about believers baptism, there were three people who immediately responded and said, well, then we need to be baptized. It was February. It was February in Connecticut. And across the street from where one of them lived was a lake called Amos Lake. Some almost 200 years later, we lived across from that same lake. And so they were baptized. And there was one man who was a deacon of the church when I was there, and his wife was a descendant of one of the women who was baptized that day. And I think, I can't remember exactly, it was like she had on 17 or 18 petticoats. Listen, I I had a baptized woman one time, and she wore like an ankle-leak denim dress, which was, you know, you don't walk into the water with a denim dress. It just, you know, but we solved the modesty problem. But trying to get her out of the water... That was pretty heavy. Seventeen or eighteen petticoats. He had to be a weightlifter. I mean that, and and it's in the dead of winter, so it's you, you probably had to chisel your way through the ice or whatever. But they, they that's how they were baptized, and that's how that's how they they got started. And so that was the, the When I did baptisms, even in August, that water was cold. I'm a Texas boy. Uh, water in August is supposed to be about eighty degrees not not fifty degrees so i Dan Ingram was doing an internship i said well you 're an intern, you need to learn how to do a baptism, so i 'll stand up on the little beach and i 'll i 'll talk about and explain explain baptism and preach the gospel and let you go out in the water we 're going to just apply john four two so uh, Dan did the actual work out in the water. he was from Iowa, so he was expecting he he grew up with cold water i didn't anyway so jesus and his disciples are going to leave judea uh, and head north to galilee now typically you would go any jew self-respecting jew would not go on a straight line from jerusalem up to galilee because that would take them through the hill country of samaria and they despise the samaritans and so um, and the Samaritans despised them. It's interesting. If you were going north, the Samaritans wouldn't bother you, but if you were going south to Jerusalem, they would they would they would try to keep you from making your trip. And that's because the Samaritans didn't believe you should worship in Jerusalem. You should work worship on Mount Gerizim. They had a a sect. They didn't they were like the Sadducees. They only had the first 5 books of, of the Bible. That plays into the story. So, Jesus and his disciples, instead of doing what everybody else did and going down to near the Jordan River and then crossing the Jordan and then going north on the other side of the Jordan till you got up by Galilee and then coming back across, he goes straight through Samaria, which must have uh, caused his disciples to think he had a couple of screws loose. And so he comes to Sichar, which is right there by Shechem, just together, at what is now uh, Samaria, and that's the location of Jacob's well, and that's why I say that that's that's in Shechem because that's where Jacob's well was. And you read that that story back in back in Genesis, and uh, so he comes to the well, and I've been there. It's now encased in a church. And they'll lower the little bucket or pail and they'll bring some water up and give you some water to drink so you can say you drank water from Jacob's well. And I usually don't get a chance to take uh, any tour groups there because it's, that's all in Palestinian territory in, in um, um, Nablus there. Nablus uh, is a word that comes from the Greek Neapolis, new city. But it's just sort of, uh, Palestinians can't pronounce the letter P, so that changes to a B, and they just sort of run it together, so Neapolis became Nablus. Um, So they come to the city, uh, they come to the city there uh, where Jacob's well was, and so Jesus sits down by the well, and it's about the sixth hour, so it's around noon, and a woman of Samaria comes to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, this is pretty surprising for her because a man asking a woman to provide water like that, a Jewish man, was unheard of. And uh, so she says, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said, If you knew the gift of God, see, he he doesn't answer her question. He goes to the heart of the matter, which is spiritual. He said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And she knows he's talking about, about him. She says, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus said to her, "'Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life.'" So the woman said to her, "'Well, give me that water. I want everlasting life.'" Give me that water that I may not thirst. Not I don't want to come here. See, she would have to come because of her background. Nobody would help her. So it, she has to come uphill to the, to the well and then carry all this water back. And so that was, uh, she had to do it by herself and she's tired. She doesn't want to do that anymore. So she said, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. And so Jesus says, call your husband and come here. Now, he's asking the question. He knows she doesn't have a husband, but he's trying to draw her out. And so she says, well, I, uh, you've, she said, I don't have a husband. She said, you've well said you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. And so she's living with some, some man, um, and he says, so you spoke the truth. And now she says, I perceive that you are... Now, the English is translated as a prophet. And the English tends to do that when you have a noun in the Greek that doesn't have an article in front of it. And this doesn't have an article in the Greek. But when the lack of an article is emphasizing the quality of the noun. She's going back to the passage in Deuteronomy 18 where God said that a greater prophet than Moses would come. This is the prophet. So she, by saying this, she's recognizing that he may be the prophet, the prophet, that's greater than Moses. She's beginning to think that maybe he's the Messiah. And then she asks a question about the disagreements between Jews and uh, Samaritans so this is where I have a slide The woman said to him, "Sir, I perceive that you are, and it should be the prophet as opposed to a prophet." Our fathers, now she asks the question. This was the big debate between Samaritans and Jews. The Samaritans thought that you should worship in Mount Gerizim, and the Jews believed it was in Jerusalem. And so she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, talking about Mount Gerizim right there, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where you ought to worship. And Jesus doesn't intervene in that argument at all. Notice how he goes on to a greater truth. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship. What does he mean by that? He says, you you're, you're worship what you don't know because you haven't taken the whole Scripture. You just have, uh, you just take the Pentateuch, and what you're taught isn't accurate. But we know what we worship We Jews know what we worship. We have the whole Old Testament. And then he says, for salvation is of the Jews. He's going right back to the Abrahamic covenant that God is going to bless all of the nations through the descendants of Abraham, and that's not the half-breed Samaritans. And then he says in verse 23, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. He says the Father is Spirit. In the next verse, God is Spirit, and those who worship Him, He repeats it. What did I say about repetition? The Holy Spirit wants you to get the point. We Those who worship Him must worship by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. Now, this is the same phraseology that you have when you get over into uh, Philippians uh, chapter 3, and it's defining who who the Christians are. They're the ones who worship God by means of the Spirit. And it you, put, puts uh, the same phraseology there, by means of the Spirit, by means of truth. And that's the same thing we'll see with walking by the Spirit in Galatians 5. Rejoice, and then the second point that defines them is they rejoice. And the word here is kaukaomai, which means to boast or to glory in something. So some translations translate it boast. The Holman uh, Christian Standard Bible translates it boast. The uh, New, New American Standard 95 and the ESV translate it as glory. And I think glory is probably a better way to translate it, not rejoice. They glory... In Christ Jesus, and then third, they have no confidence in the flesh. Now, the word for confidence through here, the um, verb is patho, and it's in the perfect tense. Now, that's important grammatically because the perfect tense is not, is emphasizing completed action. So, they have in the past made a decision to not have confidence in the flesh, in physical ritual. And the results of that continue. They've rejected this this argument from the Judaizers that physical circumcision is necessary for salvation or the spiritual life. So he's saying you have no confidence in the flesh. And the word for the um, word for confidence, as patho, means to believe or trust. Sometimes it means to be persuaded. Sometimes it's just a synonym for, um, for pist- pistuo or pistis that's talking about confidence in the flesh. Now, what's the flesh? Well, there are several meanings for the flesh. Literally, it refers to a physical, physical body. John 1.14, the word became flesh, took on human body and dwelt among us. But it can also refer to the sin nature, that which is the source of sin, mental attitude sins, emotional sins, sins of the tongue, overt sins. Or it can just refer to physical human abilities. You do something in the flesh. You do something in your physical body. You do a physical, perform a physical ritual. So confidence in the flesh is characteristic of pagan thought, thought that has rejected the grace of God. We've been studying this in the Interlock series, that you have the development of the kingdom of man. That is all the ideas that man comes up with about the nature of reality, and that is always based on works, and that is always opposed to the way God does things, which is always based on grace. So, in in the kingdom of man, it's always based on man saving himself through his own ideas or his own efforts or his own rituals. In the kingdom of God, it is salvation by grace through faith alone. Now, the sin nature is not defined per se, but it is described for us in Galatians 5 19 through 21. And in order to understand that, we need to go back for some context. In Galatians 5.16, Paul says, walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's an either-or. you walking by the Spirit, you're not going to be uh, fulfilling or bringing to completion the lust of the flesh. So here, flesh is more than just physical material. It relates to... The sin nature. And, and then you have this contrast, the flesh versus the spirit, just like you have these other contrasts, light to darkness, new man, old man. You know, you have these differences. So flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So there's this battle that goes on in our, uh, in our souls and our immaterial nature. They're contrary to one another so that you don't do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. See, there's a contrast there between the Spirit and the law because the law has been uh, fulfilled and ended at the cross. So now he's going to say, okay, you want to know the difference between the flesh and the Spirit. So he's going to give them some illustrations. It's not exhaustive. I think there's 19 characteristics here. The works of the flesh are evident which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. So those first four all deal with various aspects of sexual immorality. And then you have idolatry, which is worshiping anything instead of God, that we can make anything an idol. We can make good things an idol. You can make going to Bible class an idol. And I've heard people do it. They make Bible class every night. I haven't missed Bible class in five years. You're worshiping Bible class. You're not worshiping God. And um, now that doesn't mean that people who go to Bible class every night don't worship God. But some people, they get those confused. And uh, uh, idolatry, greed is idolatry, Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. Materialistic greed is idolatry. It's a product of the sin nature. Hatred. Mental attitude sin, contentions, that is disagreements, arguments, jealousies, another uh, it could be mental attitude or emotional sin, uh, outbursts of wrath and emotional sin, selfish ambitions, that would be part of lust, uh, dissensions, that's creating divisions, heresies, false teaching, uh, envy, that's related to wanting things that, that God is distributing to you murders and overt sin drunkenness overt sin revelries uh overt sins that has to do with orgies and the like so by saying that paul says there's a lot more to this than what i'm saying but these are just some uh some samples Uh, which i tell you beforehand just as i also told you in time past that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of god And we've gone through this many, many times. That doesn't mean you won't be saved. It means that you will forfeit rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. Then he goes on, in contrast, to describe the the production of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, self-mastery. Against such there's no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's how he summarizes Romans 6. We're no longer under the dominion of the sin nature. And he says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. It's a different word for walk. The word for walk in Galatians 5, 16 emphasize is a step-by-step procedure moving forward. Stokeo has the idea of marching in a line or following a path. And so what you see here is, what's the path? The path is the Word of God. So Stoikeo is taking this image of following the path that the Holy Spirit has laid down in front of you. And the path that the Holy Spirit has laid down in front of us is the Word of God. That describes the path of life. Uh, the way of life is a word, phrase that is often used in the uh, Old Testament, especially in Proverbs. So what was going on in uh, with these enemies is that they were emphasizing circumcision. It's emphasizing a human idea. Uh, it's emphasizing a ritual that added to the work of Christ on the cross. This was a real problem in the early church. Galatians arguably the first of Paul's epistles, not the first epistle, I think James was first, Paul really um, really reprimands them in verse 6 through 9. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. And the Greek word there is heteros. Now, heteros and alos can be synonyms But where they're used together like this, it's clear from the context. They're talking about something different. So heteros here is another kind of gospel, not the same as the one that they were told. And so Paul makes this clear. He says it's not another, it's not an alas of the same kind. Um, And he says, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. And then he says, but even if we are an angel from heaven... Preach to you a, a gospel, another gospel, a gospel different from the one that we preach to you. Let them be accursed. And then he repeats that again. He's really angry that may anyone who changes the gospel be accursed. The gospel is faith alone in Christ alone. Faith not accompanied by anything else. And Christ not associated with anything else. You're not believing in Christ in the church. You're not believing in Christ in Mary. You're not believing in Christ in baptism. uh, And your faith is just by itself. And then we get to Galatians 2.16, which the New King James is on the top, and my expanded, amplified translation is down below. And what I've said, I'm just going to read mine, Because we know that a person is not not declared righteous by means of faith um, by means of the works of the law, which in the context is circumcision, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus in order that we might be declared righteous by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh, no person will be declared righteous. It's very clear. He he excludes that from salvation. Chapters 1 and 2 deal with legalism at salvation. Chapters 3 through 6 deal with legalism for the spiritual life. So here we have the diagram of the sin nature. It has an area of strength. We're all good at being Uh, moral, being good, something like that, that's great. We can all not work our way to heaven because it's not going to get us anywhere. The opposite side are personal sins, sins of the tongue, mental attitude sins, emotional sins, overt sins, things we've already gone over. But everybody has trends, and sometimes... You may feel like you're sort of confused because part of you in some areas of life have a trend towards one, in, one direction, and in other areas you trend in the other direction. You, we can have a trend towards legalism, that's the left side, asceticism, that means really living apart from the world. Uh, that, that would describe the monastic movement of the early Middle Ages. you you just can't handle it, so you're gonna go live somewhere, climb up on top of a pillar and become a pillar state, saint like Simon Stylites. And, uh, that was real popular and people thought they were so holy because they could sit up on top of a pillar, you know, ten feet above the ground for a couple of years and that made them holy. You know, this whole idea was that I just need to withdraw from the world, but Jesus said, that we were not uh, that we were not in the world but we were to be, we were not of the world but we were to live in the world so asceticism and legalism is where the pharisees are and where a lot of christians are they're just into different forms of legalism and that ends up in moral degeneracy now the diff- the difference between legalism And obedience to to what the commands of Scripture are sometimes is not evident because one person is saying, well, I'm going to get up every morning and I'm going to read my Bible and I'm going to pray and I'm going to do certain things every day because that's part of my spiritual life. But he's legalistic, so it doesn't count because he's just trying to somehow impress God and he's just got a list of things he can do and things he shouldn't do. And the next person just loves the Lord and wants to know more about him, so he does the same thing. You can't physically look at the two people and determine from their actions which one is a legalist and which one isn't unless they say something. So legalism is self-deceptive and arrogant, and it leads to a moral degenerate. The Pharisees were moral degenerates. That's, both John the Baptist and, and uh, Jesus called them, um, called them the spawn of vipers, the seed of vipers. And that just goes back to the seed of Satan, the seed of the serpent in the Garden, garden of Eden. So on the other side, you have licentiousness, which means that oh, God, Christ died for my sin, so I just have a license to sin because I'm still saved or lasciviousness, which has to do with uh, sexual lust, or antinomianism, which has to do with just making up whatever you want to do, irregardless of any uh, biblical mandates. We live in an antinomian culture. It is a lawless culture, left and right, and they don't care. This Yesterday, Breitbart reported that um, Biden uh, was thinking about um, um, declaring uh, a Palestinian state in the Middle East. He can't do that. That violates all kinds of laws. But he didn't care. You know, he does not care about the law related to the border and enforcing the laws. He's not enforcing any laws except the ones he likes. Or thinks what he, and then on the other hand, then they're going after Trump and they're making stuff up. They're making up laws and they're getting shot down for it. it it's a purely lawless uh, nation that we're living in. And then we come to Paul in verse 4 where he says, Therefore, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. So the question is, is your confidence in the flesh or in the spirit? That's the question we ask ourselves many times every day. Am I relying upon God alone and claiming promises and trusting God alone, or am I trying to do it on my on my own? And Paul will go through this, he uses the same words we looked at earlier for confidence, and he's going to go through all of his credentials to show how if anybody had a chance at getting saved, by what they did, by their ritual and observance to the law, then he would be the number one candidate. And he says, at the end, he says it's all horse manure or cow manure or whatever term you want to use that is syn- uh, synonym. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity we've had to study your word and to recognize that we need to evaluate our own thinking many times. Are we Are we operating with confidence in our own abilities and in ritual and in our own effort? Or are we putting our confidence completely in you? And this is always part of the battle because the sin nature wants us to think it's all about us. And it's only when we're walking by the Spirit do we realize that it's not about us, it's about you. And it's about your plan and your provision. And we need to relax and go with your plan and not trust in ourselves, because when we trust in man, then we will be disappointed every time. So, Father, we pray that we might uh, be confident in you and trust in you and you alone. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.